Hey, before we get into this episode, I've got a favor to ask of you. We're starting a new segment on In Context called Ask Dr. E, and I've got a promo that I want you to listen to, so check it out. Your call has been forwarded to an automated voice messaging system. Michael Easley. Is not available. At the tone, please record your message. When you've finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. Hey, Dad. Tana. Hey, okay, I've been thinking about in context, and I had an idea that I want to run past you. So, you know how all of my friends, lots of your friends, love to pick your brain about, like, random theological questions or wondering what a Bible verse means? Okay, what if we tried a call-in show where our listeners can actually call in and leave you a voicemail with their questions. And then we'll play their questions and you can answer them in the studio. And I don't know, you know how your students at Moody Bible Institute used to call you Dr. E? Maybe we call it like, Ask Dr. E. Okay, I don't know, think about it, get back to me, bye. Okay friends, now is your chance. How many times have you been reading in your Bible and thought, what on earth does that mean? Or maybe you've grappled with some theological concepts like predestination, the Trinity, or how do slaves, women, and homosexuality change from Old Testament to New Testament today? Or I don't know, but whatever it is that you've been pondering, maybe you've thought, I wish I could ask Michael Easley what he thinks about this. Well, now is the time you can ask Dr. E. Seriously, call us. Call us at 615 281-9694. Next time you're reading your Bible in the morning, I don't care if it's 5 a.m., call us and leave a voicemail. This is a phone line set up specifically for this. A human is not going to answer your call. You are not going to wake anyone up day or night. A voicemail will pick up. So next time you're wondering, what does this mean? Big question, small question. We want to hear it. 615-281-9694. Call us, leave a voicemail, and Michael will answer your question on the show. And if you're just too shy to call, you can always send us an email at question at michaelincontext.com. But seriously, call us, 615-281-9694. I think this is going to be a blast, but we need your help. You've got to call in with your questions. Save it in your phone, write it on a sticky note, and keep it in your Bible. Ask Dr. E. 615-281-9694. Michael Easley. Is available. At the tone, please record your message. How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the Word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's Word and apply it to your life. In Context. Well, let's take a look at 1 Peter chapter 4 as we continue our study. Remember, this book is about suffering. It's about suffering for Christ's sake specifically. I want to call this message Temporal Suffering, Eternal Rejoicing. Temporal Suffering, Eternal Rejoicing. When I study this passage, what I do 
through a series of Bible study methodology, reading the text. I do use some Greek tools in the New Testament. I use a Bible study software program. But one of the things that I do is look at an assortment of commentaries to see how they treat a passage. Some of you are Bible nerds and geeks. Some of you are in those Bible studies where you can't use commentaries. I'm sorry. Some of you are in Bible studies where you can use commentaries. Uh, commentaries uh, have a plus and minus to them. But to have a grid to think through, they're very helpful in my worldview. And so the way I use a commentary is a list of what's called critical or exegetical commentaries that are very technical and then I'll call them just simply expositional commentaries. And that'd be like a preacher who turned his sermons into a book, like a Chuck Swindoll or a Alistair Begg or somebody. And, and they're pretty paint-by-numbers, James Montgomery Boyce. And then devotional commentaries. And those tend to, they may not even follow the passage really well, but sometimes they have a devotional observation or an illustration. So on a, on a really good day, I'm going to expose myself to the critical, exegetical commentaries, the expositional, and then the devotional commentaries. And it's pretty easy, based on publisher and size of the book, to know what kind of book you're dealing with. Um, so I, I went to this passage because there's, there's a lot going on in this passage. In fact, um, I'm going to give you nine points tonight because it's hard to put this in a simple, concise idea. But I went, went to see what do the scholars say. Uh, just listen to some of these scholars and what they titled the passage. Sharing the sufferings of Christ. Christ-like faith. I mean, that, that could apply to anything in the Bible, right? Suffering, joy, and judgment. That was a little better. Consolations in suffering. Suffering joyfully in accordance with God's will. The need for steadfastness in suffering as Christians. Now, I'd give all these guys an F in homiletics and how they're going to communicate these ideas, but I give them an A to understand how difficult it is to take these verses and put them in a concise sentence or two. That's, uh, if you wrote papers in school, some of you may loathe literature and loathe purpose clauses and thesis sentences and so forth and outlining. You may hate that with a passion. You're probably great in math and science. And those of us who like literature, we beat our heads against the wall trying to write a sentence that the teacher liked. Uh, so the idea of a thesis sentence is very difficult in some of the biblical narrative. In this particular didactic piece, it's hard to come up with a simple way to communicate. So I want to first point out six key terms in the passage. And then I want to show you nine points from the passage. And maybe that will help you. It helped me, and I hope it will help you. These six key terms are in the present tense imperative, meaning they're basically a command. Basically a command. We don't want to push grammar too far, but basically these ver are verbal commands. They're present tense imperatives. Verse 12, this is chapter 4 of 1 Peter. Verse 12, surprised is the first one. It's an imperative command. Secondly, in verse 13, rejoicing is an imperative command. Verse 15, suffer, which is a strange word to have as a command. It's an imperative command. We'll look at that. In verse 16, there's two of them. Be ashamed is imperative, as is glorify. And then finally, entrust. So if you're using the numeric standard, it's suffering, rejoicing, suffer, a different word than the first one. Uh, be ashamed, glorified, and entrust. One more time. Surprised, rejoiced, suffer, be ashamed, glorified, and trust. So if you step back and just look, those are the words Peter's kind of giving an oomph to. 
that gives me a little clarity on what he's trying to accomplish in this passage. And so let me distill this into this idea of temporary suffering with an eternal rejoicing. And the first one is suffering should not surprise us. Suffering should not surprise us. This is verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though something strange, as, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Beloved is unusual. Uh, Paul uses it frequently. John uses it a lot. Peter didn't use it too often. And again, it's a Bible word. Unless you're a, an old school K. Arthur fan, you probably never heard the word beloved. She all talk about beloved. Remember that? Beloved, those of you K. Arthur, beloved. You know. It's a great word. It's an endearing word. It's a maternal, paternal word given to someone that you cherish, you adore. And I find it intriguing that Peter injects it here. No doubt he'd heard it and read Paul. But this is a little bit off his style, so to speak. And he chooses, beloved, I care about you. I love you. you, you know, John would say, I'm a little children. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. I can't prove this, but my sanctified imagination thinks Peter remembers and the way we count it, John 15, 20, when Jesus told them, if they persecuted me, don't be surprised when they persecute you. Cheery Jesus, right? If, if I was persecuted, you may well be persecuted too for my name's sake. And that's precisely, I think, what's going on in Peter's head. Do not be surprised. Surprises are unwelcome. Most, I mean, some of the time, I mean, a surprise birthday party. How many of you love a surprise birthday party to be on the, the recipient? Not too many, right? Not too many. I mean, and, and isn't it interesting if, if you are married, this one spouse who loves surprise parties gives it to the spouse who hates surprise parties, right? I mean, sometimes we like a surprise. We might like, you know, if, you're, if your husband brings you home a kitten or a puppy, uh, maybe you're surprised. I don't know. But a surprise can be unwelcomed. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Now, there's this sanctimonious view of Christianity that misinterprets James. I just heard a message this week by a renowned uh, Bible teacher that I won't name who completely butchered James, count it all joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials. And their message was, you need to be joyful in the midst of trials. That's not what James says. you got to read the whole verse to get to the point that you may enduring, and when have enduring, endurance has its perfect result. It's a long parenthesis. In other words, it's, it's suffer well because you're going to learn endurance. And once you've endured, then you're going to see the reason or reasons that you, and we've talked about this before with pushing a sled. When you work out, when you run a marathon, you run a mile, you run two miles, you run three, you back off, you run two, you walk, you run one, you run three, you run four, and you're teaching your body to endure. And then on the race day, you run a half marathon or a full marathon. I could have never done that without enduring the pain and working up. You, when you encounter various trials, consider it joy. Oh, I'm so happy I got diagnosed with cancer. That's, that's just Christian nonsense. Because not what the passage is teaching. And Peter is saying the same kind of thing. Don't be surprised when this 
fiery ordeal. He doesn't say count it all joy when you go through the fire. Now, what he is saying, and if you look at the whole verse, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing. We're going to unpack this a little bit, but let me say it this way. It's not the shock of the surprise of the fiery ordeal. It's now I live with this in a bewildering way. When the shock comes, we're all going to be surprised and disappointed. But once we get past the diagnosis, past the bad news, don't live in a state of bewilderment. Don't live in a state of why. That's really what he's saying. Don't be surprised when this fiery ordeal comes upon you. Um, Don't live in an ongoing state of surprise or bewilderment. It's very easy to get hung up in the why of suffering, the why of pain, the why of problem. I could go through a list of people I've interacted with in the past few days, heart transplant, cancer treatments, um, a person whose cancer is advancing rapidly, uh, and just people that I know that are going through really difficult things, and I read this and I, and I think of each one of them and how they're responding with no judgment, but how they're responding to the trials and tribulations and the fire or deal they're going through. And some are hung up on why, and others aren't. Others have an attitude of fortitude, and they're like, I don't know what we're going to do. I mean, I love the attitude. We're going to beat this thing. I, you know, I hope. When and if I get some really horrific diagnosis, I'm going to beat this thing. But it's like the little engine that could, right? I mean, yes, you have a good attitude. Yes, you do what you're told. Yes, you try to get better. But at the end of the day, some of this stuff we can't stop, right? The whys of suffering can drive us crazy. But you can live in the fiery ordeal. The fiery ordeal is one word in Greek. And again, I I detail sometimes too often, too much with you, but I like this, so you have to suffer through it. Um, English is a hard time translating Greek and Hebrew or any language, and so we have to use two words. Some of you will appreciate this depending on your background. It's the word pyrosis, technically pyrosis, but we would gloss it in our southern pyrosis. You hear the word pyro, pyromaniac. You hear um, pyrotechnics. Uh, those in the medical community, pyrogen. So we know that word pyro means fire. It's one word in Greek. Again, we'd say it in the south, pyrosis, pyrosius. It's meant to intensify the idea of suffering. Uh, beloved, don't be surprised at the pyrosis that you're going through. Now, this is interesting because it might be a little bit of a hint, a foreshadowing of what Nero has been doing and will do. We started out this letter, I believe, I argued, I don't think Nero was burning Christians at this time. I think it comes on the heels of this book. Can't prove it, can't be bold dogmatic about it, but I don't think, I mean, it's, it's an argument from silence, but if in fact Nero was persecuting Christians to the point of death, and it is true historically, they pitched and tarred them and put them on stakes and used them as lampposts. And so, if not, it's richly ironic that Peter says the fiery ordeal among you. Perhaps he'd already been known for it. Um, And not to be too specific, but uh, Cindy and I have had a number of, uh, uh, two or three that we've known pretty well that have gone through second and third degree burns. One of our dear friends when we lived in Northern Virginia was a survivor of 9-11 in the Pentagon. 
and um, I forget the percentage of the second and third degree burns, but he was in the Washington burn unit for 13 weeks. Uh, I think he's had north of 60 surgeries post his um, burns, and we went to visit him, and, and I mean, you got to gown up and clean up and just to go in there and I went to see him in the chlorine baths and where they're debriding him and and he was gauze completely and then skin bandages on him not to be too gross but it's a ward where the people that work on those patients have to put on a mental physical armor to deal with these people it's the most intractable pain on, on the planet and I, I remember he would be in the chlorine bath for five minutes and he, he would never call me anything but pastor. He goes, pastor, every time that second clicks, it seems like an eternity. And he's on a full wide open drip of pain medication. You can't turn the pain down. So when I read about fiery ordeals, about the pain of a burn, uh, I don't think it's improper to fast forward where this passage is going to go as we look at the next few verses. Number one. Suffering should not surprise us. Number two, suffering is a testing. It's a test. Verse 12 again. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fire ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing. Now, granted, we probably all had a teacher that liked to give us pop quizzes and liked to test us and was a little malevolent. Not all teachers, but a little. Is this teacher appreciation day today? I probably shouldn't talk about it. That was yesterday. But, I mean, I had those teachers that seemed to be like, <laughs> let me torture you with a quiz, you know. Um, but what a quiz does is it shows what you, it reveals what you know and what you don't know. And a good teacher is helping you you know, the, the idea of teaching is causing you to learn. If they don't cause you to learn, it's really their fault. Now, granted, students cannot do their work, but at the end of the day, teaching is really the process of causing a student to learn, to want to learn. Testing is really not to fail us. Testing is designed to reveal what we know. Testing designs to show are you prepared or unprepared. If you haven't done your homework, you're unprepared. If you've done your homework, you're probably well prepared. The point is, Peter's saying, as though some strange thing was happening to you. This test is going to reveal something about you. It's going to reveal, did you memorize all those uh, vocabulary words? Did you memorize whatever section of anatomy you were supposed to know all the names? Did you work on that accounting problem? Did you work on your ge geometry theorems? I despised memorizing geometry theorems. It was like everything was in a vacuum, nothing built upon itself. At least algebra built on itself, you know. But, but geometry was just like, why? These people are just torturing me, you know. Uh, some of you mathematicians, you know, you think I'm an IGMO. You're probably right. Um, the point is, how are you going to process the test? The bewilderment tied in this passage is, he's testing me, so I need to learn something to get through the test. That's what I would call uh, elementary theology. It's not bad theology, it's just young. The notion that, if I learn the lesson, then God's going to remove the, the test or the trial, the struggle. I, I'm here to say, at least in, in my worldview of Christians that I've walked with, that does not always seem to be the case. Third, our suffering may share in the sufferings of Christ. Our suffering may share in the sufferings of Christ. Our suffering may share in the sufferings of Christ. Verse 13, but to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. 
so that at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. Now this is one profound statement. And candidly, this is a verse that is problematic to me. Not the verse, but understanding it and applying it. The question that plagues me is that when is your suffering, when is my suffering like Christ's? That's what Peter's saying. To the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, don't raise your hands. Can any of us honestly say, I suffered for the sake of Christ? I'm sharing. I mean, if we've got really bad sinus condition, if we've got cancer, if we've got you know, a child that's broken our heart, a relationship that's broken our hearts, if we've got we've been fired, if we've gone through litigation. I mean, paint the worst scenario that you and I think about at night. Is that the suffering of Jesus? And most of us in our sanity would say, I, I can't quite go there, Michael. I can't quite say. Now, if I've got a missionary friend in India or in a uh, sensitive area that's surrounded by a lot of animosity and he or she is being persecuted, one could say they're being persecuted, suffering for the sake of Christ, but we're so insular. So I give you that as a caveat, but that said, Paul wrote about this in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. And that's another passage that I have spent Lots of time exegeting and studying and reading about what in the world does it mean for you and me as a Westerner in a pretty insulated, pretty cush worldview to say I'm suffering for the sake of Christ. I'm in the fellowship of suffering. Are we really suffering the same way Christ did? One could argue that in our suffering, we're identifying a little bit, a skosh, with what Jesus suffered. You can go there if you want. I have a little bit of resistance just personally to go there. The question is, when we suffer, is there any connection to what Peter is saying here that I'm sharing in the sufferings of Christ? I got no answer for you. I'll leave this one as an open-ended study of your own. Um, again, when I go to my missionary friends, um, it makes sense. When I go to you know, where I am in life today, I don't candidly, I don't think I've ever suffered for the sake of Christ. Maybe I need redefinition. Maybe you have and you can educate me, but that's where I'm standing tonight. The question then is how we suffer, what are we doing? Now, Peter quickly notes two outcomes, and this does give me help. First, he says, rejoice. Keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. This is that imperative command. So when you share in the suffering of Christ, rejoice. So that gives me an interesting clue. The outcome of the fellowship of suffering, as Paul may call it, or sharing in the suffering of Christ, as, P as Peter's calling it here, is that my response is going to be a choice to rejoice. The psalmist said it this way in Psalm 42.5, Why are you in despair, O my soul? Some of you remember the song that, the Gloucestus, uh, why so downcast, O my soul, put your hope in God, put your hope in God. Any of you remember that song? Why so downcast, O my soul? They, they stole it from Psalm 42. Uh, why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. There's a choice to rejoice in the middle of suffering. Um, one of Cindy's and my dear friends um, 
he's been through a one living liver donation and then a full cataract liver donation, and his daughter has the same disease, and she went through a living liver donation and is now awaiting a full cataract donation. And these are massive surgeries with long-term issues. And um, they are remarkable individuals because um, my friend has this sermon he gives about uh, Exodus and the waters of Marah. And he said when they came to the waters of Marah, they were bitter. And he goes, the day they were bitter, they should have been rejoicing. And then it's when they go six kilometers to the, the, the oasis, the date palms of Elam, and they find springs of cool, uh, clear water that they're happy and they're eating dates and you know, swimming by the pool, so to speak, at the resort. And then they're rejoicing. But it was only after they grumbled. Three days out of the exodus, they're grumbling and complaining against God. And he goes, the day we grumble is the day we should rejoice. Some people are better at that than me. But this is an outcome, Peter is saying, of those who share in the suffering of Christ. The second outcome is he says you'll share in the suffering. The word koinonia is the word share here. Now, just a little sidebar here. Now, the word koinonia has another one is Christian words. Some of us grew up in churches that had koinonia groups. It was kind of like we used to toss the word agape around a lot. These words, all this stuff comes and goes. Um, but, but then it became sort of amalgamated that, that koinonia was fellowship groups. And fellowship groups take on all kinds of forms in all kinds of churches. Not bad words, but they start to hang on a meaning that we have horizontally, not what they mean biblically. The word koinonia in the New Testament is translated fellowship sometimes, but it's translated here, uh, sharing sometimes, but it's translated here, share in the sufferings. The word really means an alliance. That you're in an alliance with somebody. Peter says, to the degree that you are in alliance with the sufferings of Christ, you rejoice. And in that respect, we are participating in Christ's suffering. Well, one of the things that in this fellowship of suffering that's been it's been challenging to me personally and, and maybe some of you as well. Um, I'm going to turn over in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 for just about three minutes. These verses at some point jumped off the page at me years ago, and I memorized them, and I've mulled over them and, and studied them in different ways, shapes, and forms. But I give this to a lot of people that are in chronic pain or suffering or have trauma in their life because it's very typical when the trauma hits, all the props are knocked out, we don't necessarily act rationally, et cetera, et cetera. And this passage to me is a rich, profound place that I come back to again and again and again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Now watch what Paul does here. Who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves were comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, again, as I pause, Paul and Timothy could say that. He's been persecuted. He's been beat. He's been flogged. He's been shipwrecked. He's been run out of town, let out in a basket. I mean, the guy's had a tough life. Just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we're afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. Or if we're comforted, it's for your comfort. 
which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. One thing I can tell you about suffering, Scripture is consistent, patient enduring. That's a consistent theme, patient enduring in the middle of suffering. Our hope, verse 7, for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our suffering, the same phraseology, so you also are sharers of our comfort. Comfort, depending on your English translation, is the key term in there, and the, the structure of what Paul writes there is this back and forth. We're comforted for you, for your comfort. We're afflicted for you, for your comfort. The comfort we get, we give back to you. It's an astonishing passage. What he's saying in no uncertain terms we suffered far more than you have any idea. And I'm not really going to whine about it, but we suffered more than you can imagine. And you know why we've endured it? For your benefit. It's a very interesting tome. And then later, of course, in chapter 8 and following, he'll talk about some of the things that he experienced in that suffering. So let's then go back to 1 Peter chapter 4. The idea of this suffering for Christ's sake, that we somehow rejoice in it and share in it, that passage helps me sort of color in the blanks a little bit. Fourth lesson, fourth point, Christians' suffering anticipates a future rejoicing. Christian suffering anticipates a future suffering. The text is clear here in verse 13 that there is an eschatological, a future joy. Look at it again. So also that at the revelation of his glory, that's looking forward in time, at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Implication, you may not be able to rejoice in the same way now that you will in this future time period. And the text seems clear. It's forward thinking. Um, Masterman writes that the Christian is made ready for the joy that expands into a fullness at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Back to the marathon metaphor. Um, you run a little bit, you run a little more, you have some injuries, you run a little more, a little more, you take a break, you run a really long run, you know, as you train up and up and up. And then when you finally cross that tape on your half marathon, I mean, there's a joy inexpressible. You lost your toenails maybe, there's a joy inexpressible. You are so excited that you finished that thing. It's inexpressible. And this ties into Masterman, the Christian, is made ready for the joy. You couldn't go out tomorrow on a marathon unless you practiced or are currently a runner. But if you did, then you're ready for the joy, he says, that expands into a fullness, and then far more important, at the appearance of Jesus Christ. Fifth, suffering for Christ results in blessing. Suffering for Christ results in blessing. Verse 14, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Peter ascribes this suffering, uh, if you're reviled, it's now talking about verbal. So he's moving to, we, you know, six and stones do hurt. Words do hurt. They both hurt. Um, and this is something we gloss over in our economy. Calvin notes for the noble-minded, there is more often more bitterness in slanderous attacks than in the loss of goods or in the torments or agonies of the body. Uh, we might have been beat up at school. Uh, we might have gotten in a fight, got a black eye. I mean, I don't 
We fought when we were in elementary high school. We had fist fights. Guys had black eyes. I mean, it just it was the way of the world. I don't. I mean, I remember fighting some guys. I remember Kevin O'Hearn beating the snot out of me. I remember hitting this one kid named Bill Hamilton in junior high and knocking him on the ground. And frankly, I felt good about it. He'd been bugging me for weeks. But you know, things people said about me, I still remember. Things that teachers said about me, I still remember. So I agree with Calvin. More often bitterness in such slanderous attacks than the loss of goods or the torments or agonies of the body. That the spirit of glory and God rest on you. He's speaking of the Holy Spirit. Well, six, the warning against suffering because of sin. Six, the warning against suffering due to sin. Make sure, verse 15, that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler. Because we're all sinful people, there's no exceptions, we're reminded. Now, there's two camps here. This, this passage probably applies to both believers and non-believers. It's going to apply to non-believers very quickly in a moment. But what, what Peter is saying to the audience here, if you're going to suffer, don't suffer because of something egregious that's obviously wrong. Now, we can't excuse suffering brought on by sin. I'm not going to get the language precisely right, but the law in self-defense is um, if you're a person committing a crime, if you've broken into a pharmacy and are stealing drugs or, you're, or you've got illegal drugs or you're robbing a house and you go in and the owner or somebody comes at you with a weapon, you don't have the right to pull out a gun and shoot that person while you're committing a crime. That's indefensible. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, I, he was going to hurt me only because you were committing a crime. That's exactly what Peter's saying. If you choose to sin, you may well suffer for that. And this is a warning. Edwards writes, wherever we are inclined to play the martyr, we might suspect we're not suffering as a Christian. Interesting. I'm a victim. I'm a martyr. You don't understand what the world's done to me. You don't know how bad it's been. When that tune comes out, Edwards is suggesting they may not be suffering as a Christian. They're suffering because of their stupidity, their sin, their choices. Not universally. Uh, let's go to 7. There is no shame in suffering as a Christian. There's no shame in suffering as a Christian. Verse 16. But, but, Peter doesn't leave that exclusive to everything. But, if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. The term Christian only occurs three times in your New Testament. Twice in Acts and once here. The first time is in Acts eleven twenty six. Very good uh, likelihood that it was a pejorative, derogatory term to be called a Christian. One of those Christians. Uh, we would use certain um, ethnic epithets to talk about people, slurs and language we don't use, shouldn't use anymore. That's the sense of the word Christian. It's like when the Protestants who were trying to reform the Catholic Church, if you know a little bit of your history, when they wrote the so-called Geneva Bible that had uh, notes in the margin, because the Bible couldn't be translated into German, that was anathema. It could be translated in, uh, in English, obviously, not until much later, but that was wrong. You can't do that with the Bible. And they had notes at the bottom. And so when the Geneva Bibles were printed, the Catholic Church calls them, oh, those are those protesters' Bible. 
And the word protesters becomes glossed into Protestant. And Protestants wear it like a badge of honor today. It's kind of like deplorables, you know. There was a certain part of the segment of the population that said, hey, I'm happy to be called a deplorable if that's what it means. And that the word Christian is not unlike that. It was a condescending term more than likely. And Peter uses it here the, only the third time, twice in Acts and only here in Peter's epistle. If anyone suffers as a Christian. This one to me is pretty easy to apply. I've, I've contended for the past decade or so that to be an evangelical, fundamental, Bible-believing Christian is the last vestige where you can be vilified and hated and spoken ill of with no repercussion. You can burn a Bible. You can ban a Bible. You can put a Bible in a bucket of urine. You can put a cross in a bucket of urine and call it art. Do that with a Quran and see what happens. So it's kind of a crazy maker. So this one to me is pretty easy applicationally. Um, that if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed. As God's judgment is real, eighth here, suffering has a wide-reaching warning. Suffering has a wide-reaching warning. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? God does not minimize the Christian's sin. Obviously, we're positionally saved and secured, but our sin is nonetheless abhorrent, and we will be disciplined for that. God is merciful. He doesn't always discipline us one-to-one. -one. Praise God. If he did, we'd all have been pounded flat a long time ago. He's very merciful. Grace and mercy are two different things. But he doesn't exempt us from discipline. There's a time when he'll become, to use anthropomorphic terms, he becomes impatient. He's not, but he becomes impatient with us. Or he brings discipline because it's time to, you know, I'm going to learn you, boy. We could put it that way. Peter distinguishes from suffering that refines our faith. And he did that in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Now he says, you're not exempt from discipline. If you murder and you, you're a thief, an evildoer, a meddler, you may well have consequences. But the more chilling part of the passage is for those who don't. And that's what I love Peter's logic here. He says, he's going to clean out the household of God. If it's with difficulty, the righteous are saved? It's like he hit his head. What more then for those godless and sinners? What about those who don't know the gospel? The godless and the sinner will be judged. Now, this is a fun study for you. I'll give you a, to do it on your own sometime. Take your concordance, and just as a rule of thumb, if you don't have a concordance, you use the concordance in keeping with your Bible. NIV, use an NIV concordance. ESV, ESV concordance. Uh, New American Standard, New American Standard concordance. All this is now online and free of charge and easy to use. You don't have to buy the big clunky books like we used to. Take a concordance in your English Bible that you prefer, and I want you to go look up this whole idea of um, judgment. And every time you find judgment in the New Testament, take a pad and a pen or your word processor, copy and paste those verses, write them out by hand, and go track down and see how many different judgments there are in the New Testament. There's not just one. There's arguably at least six, maybe seven, 
judgments. And then not the kind of judgments you know they oh you're judging Christians. You're just, there's a great white throne judgment, judgment of the nations, judgment of the unbelieving Jews, judgment of works. There's all kinds of judgments. So when you read judgment, you need to, you know, make a note, you Bible students, you know, make a note, go home and do some study on that. That's a longer lesson for you to do because I don't have time to do it tonight. What about those who don't obey the gospel? They're going to be judged. Now, this idea of the godless man and the sinner being judged and eternally separated from Christ is so fallen out of popularity that most churches in the country don't talk about this anymore, and many churches have removed the idea of hell, uh, open theism, uh, that, that a person has a chance after they die. It's very common in pulpits today. And the idea that, well, God's loving, and at the end you're just annihilated. This is... I mean, this is coming from people that at one time believed the Bible. But the pressure of the culture of intolerance and hateful speech and unloving God, and I could never love a God who fill in the blank, which, by the way, is inventing God in your own image. So we have all this noise coming at us, so we change our theology. And a lot of people I've respected for decades have jettisoned the idea of eternal punishment, God's judgment, and hell being a real place. Uh, that's dangerous theology. Peter reminds us an uncomfortable truth here. We deserve the same hell, but we've been granted heaven. Last point nine, when you suffer, suffer according to God's will. When you suffer, suffer according to God's will, verse 19. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. And this ties up good bow on the whole passage. If you're going to suffer for Christ's sake, do it in such a way where you're entrusting your life to God. Christ is the ultimate expression, the ultimate example of the person who obeyed his Father. Listen to Philippians 2, 8 and following. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Those who are in heaven, those on earth and under the earth. By the way, not only is hell a real place biblically and theologically, the eternality of the image bearer of God cannot be extinguished. When he made us in his image, he made us with the capacity for eternity. The only difference is residence. Will you spend eternity with him or in hell separate from him? Because he cannot destroy and annihilate his image bearers because they're made in his image no more than he can destroy himself. That's the character of God. Uh, Tim Keller wrote an extraordinarily good book called uh, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. And in his introduction, he writes a paragraph that always traps me. I want to help readers live life well and even joyfully against the background of terrible realities. The loss of loved ones, debilitating and fatal illnesses, personal betrayals, financial reversals, and moral failures, all of these will eventually come upon you if you live out a normal lifespan. No one is immune. A cheery Tim Keller introduction. Therefore, no matter what precautions we take, no matter how well we have our life put together for good, no matter how hard we work to be healthy, wealthy, comfortable, 
with friends and family and successful in our career, something inevitably will ruin it. No amount of money, power, or planning can prevent bereavement, illness, relational betrayal, financial disaster, or a host of other troubles that will enter your life. Human life is fatally fragile and subject to forces beyond our power to imagine. Life is tragic. We all know this intuitively, and those who face the challenge of suffering and pain learn too well that it's impossible to do so using only your own resources. We all need support if we're not to succumb to despair. And Peter, I think, would agree with Keller. This life is full of trial. Does that mean life always stinks, it's always miserable, and you need to be Eeyore? No. But when these things come, our preparation, as Keller says, is at best tremulous. So when we suffer, can we suffer in the way he attended for his glory, for his honor? And the bottom line is it takes his spirit's control in our life to do any of this, right? But that's what you want. That's what I want. I don't want to be that bitter person in my suffering and disappointments in life and people. Do you? Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters. Mm-hmm.